Welcome to Between the Rows, where you get to hear the stories behind the stories in Canada's leading farm publications. Between the Rows podcast is brought to you by Glacier Farm Media and sponsored by FCC Ag Expert, Canada's number one field and accounting software. Try it for free at agexpert.ca. Hello, and welcome to Between the Rows. I'm Ed White, your host this week. Today we're going to hear about how China might, or might not, or is, or isn't reacting to the continued detention of a Huawei executive in Canada. We'll get an update on the markets from Glacier Markets Farm. We'll hear from an expert on Canada's food industry about how it has done so far during the COVID crisis. But first, has the shock of COVID-19 actually helped those farmers who sell direct to the consumer? We've heard lots of predictions that we should see that, but what's really happened? I'm joined now by Geraldine Witchers of the Manitoba Cooperator to discuss this. Hello, Geraldine, and welcome to the show. Hello. So you've been taking a bit of a look at this, as uh, have a number of uh, reporters. Um, what, what's your sense right now of what's really happening with uh, direct-to-the-consumers uh, sales by farmers? So when we saw the closures of some of the meat plants uh, a little bit earlier this year, there was a definite bump um, in meat sales especially, and that seems to have continued. Um, I guess people are maybe a bit concerned about the meat supply chains, and it feels a little safer to buy really close to home. Um, And so I've had um, uh, one farm I spoke to said that they they were selling out – sort of on their monthly direct sale orders, and they had um, their their bulk, so like sides of beef, quarters of beef, booked all the way into 2021. So, I mean, that that's pretty intense demand for a small farm like that. Um, when it comes to other products, um, I have heard some reports that the CSAs, so, you know, the vegetable subscription type programs, are also seeing a bump in demand. Um that hasn't come exceptionally clear to me yet. That might only sort of develop as, as the growing season progresses. Yeah, I can say, you know, one of those CSAs uh, I signed up with after uh, this whole mess started because I started thinking, well, you know, I wouldn't mind having uh, a bit more of a diversified base of where I get my uh, my vegetables from. Uh-huh. One, one farm that I was... Um, one farm that I follow on Instagram was also selling bedding plants because there's, there's been... Um, quite an increase in interest in, in people growing their own vegetables and growing their own gardens. So I guess um, they were able to sort of capitalize on that. And then another uh, small vegetable farm that I also follow um, was giving out uh, gardening advice, which seems kind of counterproductive since that they sell vegetables. But um, I guess, you know, part of their model is to build relationships with people. So it makes business sense, I guess, to, uh, to give out good advice and not just good vegetables. Yeah, you know, one thing I've noticed when I've spoken to a few of these uh, these farmers that are involved in this is they really don't seem to see themselves as uh, competing um, against others in, in the same way that uh, I think a lot of business and a lot of uh, maybe mainstream agriculture does. They, they kind of have a um, just less of that sense of... Um, uh, sort of fighting over the same consumer, fighting over the same dollar. They they seem to think they can just um, grow and grow and grow. They're they're part of the uh, of the of the market of of the industry. Mm-hmm. Well, at this point, um, direct sales of of meats and of vegetables and other products really don't represent a very 
big part of the food sector in Manitoba or Canada as a whole. So really, they do have a fair bit of field to play uh, as far as um, not really overlapping with each other because they're all pretty small. But also, like, um, the definite sense that I've gotten from spending time with these farmers and reporting on them is that they really do feel the need to band together to be taken seriously because they are so small. And so it really doesn't make sense for them to fight with each other because because um, they really need their combined voices to get anything done in terms of policy. You mentioned that you, you were following, you know, one or some at least on things like Instagram. Um, you know, I I've follow quite a few on uh, Twitter uh, and I see they have um, Facebook uh, pages too, uh, a lot of them. Um, is that your sense that, that the folks that are doing this tend to be pretty digitally savvy? Um, not to say that all of them are. Uh, it might depend a little bit on um, the age or demographic of the farmer. But yeah, that does seem to be a pretty good component, um, especially I think in like the vegetable farming sphere because, because you can sure make a pretty picture out of some of your... Uh, produce and so forth and and I also see a lot of farm pets getting uh, brought into the picture because nothing does so well as pets do on social media Um, yeah social media is definitely a big part of it and you know this part of the um, sort of smaller scale and more direct to consumer uh, farm marketing you know we're hearing a lot uh, about the potential there and the good luck there but there's another whole wing that isn't doing as well uh, in terms of the, the farmers' markets in cities uh, these days. Is that a sense you're getting? I know, you know, here in Winnipeg, the St. Norbert's, uh, Norbert's Farmers' Market has, like, really been trying to figure ways to um, deal with, with the new uh, reality. Um, what, what's your sense of how farmers' markets are, are coping with um, their ability to get to the consumer? They've definitely been forced to adapt. I know early um, early on in the spring, um, there was definitely some concern from farmers that are we even going to have markets to sell at? Do we even start planting crops? Um, and so there was definitely pressure on, on Direct Farm Manitoba and, and uh, market organizers to find a way to make things work despite um, safety measures that have to be in place. And so... Um, St. Norbert, of course, has been online now for quite a few weeks. Um, and then they, uh, Direct Farm Manitoba also got a, um, uh, what would you call it, a grant, I guess, from the federal and provincial government um, to buy a platform that can help put the rest of the markets online as well. Um, in terms of sales, I guess I, I don't know for sure what how their sales have been affected, if they've uh, dropped or... Um, or gone up or anything like that, but I, I have heard that the actual traffic at the St. Norris Farmers, Farmers Market has been down, like the foot traffic has been down, but their drive-through um, pickup sort of center for their online um, sales has been has been pretty busy. Yeah, a lot of amazing adaptation going on. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks very much, Sherilyn, for joining us today about this. Yeah, for sure. That was Geraldine Witchers, who is a reporter with the Manitoba Cooperator. This is Between the Rows. This is a question I also looked at for a story in the June 4th Western Producer. I spoke with Professor Simon Samoji of the University of Guelph, and this is some of what he told me. 
I started out by asking him uh, a question that's come to a few of us and a few of us have written about, which is, has Canada's food supply system during this pandemic been a disaster or a success? To, to answer what you said, you know, if, you, if you take a step back, and I know it's a bit tricky, but take a step back and look at the, the food system as a whole. You know, it, it's a system that has to rapidly adapt to its circumstances. It, it prov- provides a highly perishable product that, well, generally speaking, a highly perishable product that um, uh, that's not standardised, that it's not like making cars or aeroplanes where everything is simple, comes off, you know, the, your input supplies, the way you produce is, is factory, everything comes out perfect each time. Um, wholesalers, retailers, processors, they're always having to adapt to uh, suppliers not being able to get the product in on time, um, you know, weather events, um, changes in, in, in production location, those sort of things. So... They're already, it's already a system that's pretty adaptive to the way to changes in its surround. I asked the professor also about what all this public attention to and all this public scrutiny of Canada's food system uh, has meant for the public perception of Canada's food supply. Yeah, to what you said, Ed, that, you know, up until COVID, you know, the average, uh, arguably, the average Canadian understood retailing because you know they go to grocery stores and they understand how that works and how you buy a product and they and they had a, a reasonable idea about what farming does but nothing about the businesses in between uh, those two businesses um, and it's really shed a light on on how the food they get gets to their plate um, I, I think there's been a lot of talk from pundits that the food system's broken and I think I mentioned this before um, uh, it's not broken um, in my mind, it's it was it's it's it's, it's how should I put this? Um, let me make it my brain around the words. <laughs> um, it's it's a system that is flexible in its design. Um, it has to be because we have to get food on our plates. I asked Professor Samoji about what all the attention as well to the question of foreign labor on Canada's farms and in Canada's agriculture means and about the idea that perhaps some of Canada's unemployed workers could be quickly employed on Canada's farms. I recognize that those jobs require a lot of specific skills. Um, We don't just import um, a lot of people from, say, Central America or Caribbean uh, to work on our uh, farms because they're cheap. It's because they know how to plant, harvest. They understand food safety. Um, they understand market specification issues. So they're definitely not um, low-skilled labour. Um, so I think that's one angle that people might be getting a little bit wrong. You can see a written version of our conversation in this week's Western Producer. There have been developments in Canada's diplomatic dispute with China, but has anything changed in terms of Canada's agriculture trade? I'm joined by Sean Pratt of the Western Producer now to talk about that. Hello, Sean, and welcome to Between the Rows. Hey, Ed. So what has uh, happened and what is happening? Well, um, what has happened is that the B.C. Supreme Court ruled that the extradition case against uh, Huawei Executive Meng Wanzhou could proceed. And um, I guess that is... That's what's happened, and I, I I spoke to a bunch of people in the industry and uh, asked them about 
their thoughts on that. And I, and what they're concerned about is what may happen uh, as a result of that ruling. They're worried that there could be further reprisals from China. And, you know, how are we going to know if that happens? Uh, the Chinese, uh, you know, the first go-rounds with uh, canola and pork and beef didn't really put out a press release or make an official statement that they were doing that for this diplomatic reason. How are we going to figure out if something's happening like that? Well, I guess the uh, industry will know if, <laughs> if all of a sudden there's some non-tariff trade barrier erected in the next uh, week or two here, they'll have a pretty good idea why it w- went up. Um, I mean, China has never said that it, it that it uh, restricted canola exports because of this detention of this Huawei executive, but everybody and their dog uh, knows that's why what happened. And so uh, I, th- I think it'll be pretty obvious if uh, there's uh, suddenly a non-tariff trade barrier erected for, for uh, you know, a certain ag commodity. Now, for, from the people you spoke to uh, um, this week, uh, has anyone seen anything immediately uh, following that, that BC Supreme Court ruling? No, there's been nothing immediately uh, happening, and, and nobody that I spoke to said that there's any inkling that there will be. But they're all, every single one of them, are all very nervous because, um, as you and I know, China is known for um, this kind of reprisal. They've got, they've done it against the U.S. They've done it um, uh, against Australia with their barley exports. Against Canada, with uh, as you alluded to, um, oil seeds and and uh, pork and beef. So there, there, there's a lot of trepidation out there. Um, and many of the industry folks say they're concerned, but they also say there's nothing really you can do about it. <laughs> you can just sort of deal with it when it happens. Yeah, I know it. You know the, the sort of lack of immediacy. I'm, I'm sure adds a bit of stress to the industries uh, not being able to know if something is or isn't going to happen because I know with canola it was, it was uh, two or three months um, after uh, the arrest of uh, Mung that uh, there was anything that we saw directly that all of a sudden there was a problem with the canola shipments. It didn't seem to happen for a couple of months and then all of a sudden screech. Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the way it works and so like I say, like a lot of these groups are, are kind of biting their nails and, and worried what could happen. I spoke to a couple of analysts and asked them, um, you know, what what their thoughts were. Uh, these were grain industry analysts. So I, I asked them, you know, what could be the next target on the grain side of things. And so Neil Townsend with uh, FarmLink Marketing Solutions, he you know, he wondered if he didn't think it would be barley because China's already in a dispute with Australia and has erected like an eighty percent tariff against Australian barley exports. So he didn't think that they can cut off Australian supplies and Canadian supplies. So that one might be given a pass. Um, but he thinks yellow peas could be a, a potential target. And Bruce Burnett with um, Markets Farm also thought that yellow peas could be one of the targets. We, we ship a 
lot of yellow peas to China. So I spoke to Greg Terrick, president of uh, Pulse Canada, uh, to get his take on that. And, you know, he said there, there's been no no uh, inkling that, that China's going to uh, erect some sort of non-tariff trade barrier or tariff trade barrier against uh, uh, peas or any other pulses. Uh, he, and he said that Canada has very consistently met their phytosanitary requirements over the last 20 years so that he, he doesn't think there's anything that he's aware of in that regard that they, that they couldn't address if, if there was a phytosanitary issue. And he also mentioned that pea protein use in China has exploded. It's gone up 140% over the last three years. Um, and Canada supplies 95% of those peas. So China needs the peas. So, uh, but he did acknowledge that, you know, it's the industry has become far too dependent on a few markets like China and India and that there's a big risk in that these days because the world is drifting away from rules-based trade. So, you know, he said the, the industry has been working on diversification strategies for, for many, many years, not just now because there's this potential looming uh, threat. But they've been, you know, five, five ten years ago that started trying to diversify into new markets. And with this situation between um, China and Canada, um, the the situation in BC with the BC Supreme Court ruling, um, that's hardly hardly the end of this uh, matter, is it? it? It's just one of uh, the many steps in a, a legal process that could take years. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but I guess it's it's a step that. Uh, that the Chinese were hoping wouldn't happen. And and <laughs> some of the folks in the ag industry were hoping wouldn't happen either because, uh, you know, I spoke to Dan Darling, at the, he's the president of the Canadian Agri-Food Trade Alliance, and, you know, his hope was that there would be an outcome that would pave the way for a return to some sort of normalcy in trade with China. But obviously that's not the case. And so he says, you know, what, he says this is very troubling uh, and and very concerning. Um, you know, he wonders, like everyone else, what could be the next target. Uh, his hope is that common sense will prevail, and, and China, you know, at some point, China can't keep targeting egg products from every country it has a dispute with because they need to feed their citizens. So um, he's hoping that, you know, they're kind of running out of options there, but who knows? They certainly seem to be piling up the disputes because, like you say, they're having fights with Australia uh, most recently. But obviously, with the United States, it's it's none too friendly between those two. Uh, mm-hmm. With Canada, and there's various European countries uh, in uh, little spats too. So, I suppose, at some point, like you say, they've got to figure out who they want to punish most. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and the hope is that that maybe they've sort of done all they can do in terms of uh, targeting the egg sector, um, but you know, like the analysts were saying, that there are there are things that uh, you know there are commodities that we ship over there that could potentially be targeted, like flax is another one. Um, 
lot of flax to China, uh, and and that's our biggest market for that commodity. So China is the biggest market for a lot of our commodities. That's the that's the real worrisome part of all this. So it's an anxious situation, and uh, I, I guess I can uh, uh, wish you. Uh, uh, I guess uh, good luck in covering this for what might be the uh, next few years. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today, Sean. Thank you. Sean Pratt is a reporter with the Western Producer. This is Between the Rows. Now let's switch from talking about Canada's messed up relationship with China to talking about the messed up relationship of the U.S. and China. I'm joined by Glenn Halleck of Glacier Markets Farm to talk about that. Hello, Glenn, and welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Ed. So, Glenn, what's going on now with this uh, ongoing soap opera of the U.S. and China scrapping over trade? Okay, so uh, relations between the United States and China have soured in uh, recent weeks and months, uh, largely for for three reasons. One is the Trump administration continues to blame China for all of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we've also seen China flexing its military muscles in the South China Sea and with Taiwan. And now we have uh, the continuing pro-democracy demonstrations in Hong Kong. With the pandemic, these demonstrations didn't stop. They just, like everyone else, started wearing uh, masks over over their, their, their faces. And it's gotten to the point where China decided to impose a new security law on Hong Kong, that in turn has angered the Trump administration, which is threatening to take action should China go ahead with this with this um, new, new security law. And right now we're at the point where yesterday the Chinese government ordered its state-owned businesses to stop importing farm goods from, from the U.S. And of course the big item being U.S. soybeans. So that's where we are right now. And this is what China has been um, saying it's going to do, or has been reported as having said to to its purchasers uh, and importers. What's the view in the markets of uh, how firm that will be and how much of that will actually happen? Well, what we saw yesterday, there there were rumors in the media that China did buy three, three cargoes of uh, soybeans. And this morning, there was an announcement from the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture that there was a private sale of about 132,000 tons of soybeans to China. Our understanding is that's not being bought by state-owned enterprises in China. That could be privately owned uh, um, uh, businesses in, in, in China doing, doing that. And I guess if we remember so right from our uh, from our canola dispute uh, as well with China, was China the Chinese government seemed to allow existing business that was on the books to to be completed, but then yes. things just stopped happening after that. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's something that uh, could be happening right now. Um, you know, under the Phase One trade agreement that was signed back in January. Uh, China was to buy $40 billion of farm purchases from, from the U.S. Uh, they barely started that, and that $40 billion uh, for this year alone is $12 billion more than what China has ever bought in uh, U.S. farm uh, 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 imports. 
And then on top of that, next year, to be $50 billion. And what can be safe? China is buying soybeans from um, Brazil in, instead. So it's a bit of a um, sort of a shell game of switching around the commodities that China needs then. Oh, yes, yes. Um, with the pandemic, uh, China quickly found itself in the shortage of soybeans, uh, and they've been buying them you know, as, as quickly as they can from um, Brazil, because uh, Brazil's currency, the real, is far, far lower than the uh, screenback. And what have we seen in the markets now? Reaction, I guess, in the soybean markets? What have we seen in the canola markets? How, how is that working out? Uh, well, yesterday, uh, on, on Monday, um, soybeans took a bit of a dive, uh, but then there came this, the, these rumors that China had bought three cargoes of, uh, of U.S. soybeans. And uh, by the end of the day, soybeans were only down about a... Uh, quarter of a cent, which is which is not too bad considering all all of the commotion that, that had been going on. Now for canola, uh, Monday was not a great day. It, uh, the the July uh, contract for for uh, canola lost lost four dollars a ton. That's not so much what had been happening with uh, U.S. soybeans and soy oil. Rather, it was the spike in the um, uh, Canadian dollar. Yesterday alone, uh, the loony shot up almost uh, eight tenths of a cent, which which is a pretty big uh, uh, one day jump. And I guess soon uh, we're we're going to maybe be able to switch a little bit out of talking about all these uh, uh, political issues and diplomatic disputes and uh, pandemics, and uh, hopefully be able to uh, talk about the crops growing in the field. Yeah, uh, things are are looking pretty good across the prairies. Uh, as of last week, Manitoba farmers were about uh, two thirds finished. Uh, the farmers in Saskatchewan, Alberta, they're roughly around eighty uh, percent finished. Now that will change over the co- course of the coming coming days as the new uh, um, uh, crop reports come in. Uh, Manitoba and Saskatchewan are supposed to be relatively rain-free this week. Uh, there's more rain further to the west in Alberta, especially in the north. That's that's kind of holding up uh, spring spring planting. But uh, on the whole, things are looking pretty good for uh, crops so far this year. Let's keep our fingers crossed and keep hope it keeps on looking good. So thanks very much, yeah, Glenn, for joining us uh, joining us today. Well, well, thanks so much, Ed. Glenn Halleck is a reporter with Glacier Markets Farm. That's all for this week. Join us next week for another edition of Between the Rows. I'm Ed White, and I wish you all a productive and safe week of farming. Between the Rows podcast is brought to you by Glacier Farm Media and sponsored by FCC Ag Expert, Canada's number one field and accounting software. Try it for free at agexpert.ca.